brother Derek. How you doing, sir? Well, I'm excited to talk to you again. Likewise, my guy. It is, um, I mean, we're in the Hebrew Bible. That means there is a new unit. Uh, we've been talking, this will be our second week in a row that we have uh, been discussing Hebrew Bible and uh, further really getting acquainted with exactly how much material there is to cover. We uh, did not we did not get through everything we wanted to talk about last week. Um, Derek made an observation at the end of the last episode that we didn't even talk about, um, you know, the, the, um, what do you call it? The, the image of God. Yes. The that... image of God and how that, uh, mm-hmm. decries racism, how, how basically anti-racism is inscribed in the creation story. And I'm shocked in myself. Cause like, I didn't even talk about that, and I'm always looking for stuff like that. And I even, like, this is the funny part, Derek. This is actually in my course. Like, I literally quoted mm-hmm. those verses in Genesis for my course. And the fact that I didn't see them or try to use them just shocked me. There was just so much other stuff to go through for the creation story. And I imagine there's going to be a lot, there's going to be something similar going on today. Because, again, a lot of uh, stuff to cover. Uh, we're going to be covering the, what is it, the fall today. And of course, that narrative contained in a section, or sorry, in chapters three and four, and then Moses chapters uh, four and five. There's just a lot going on. And again, I'm, I am pretty confident we're not going to get through everything we want to talk about today. But hopefully, we can at least uh, ask some decent questions as jump-off points that'll be able to, you know, guide the listener to other ways to read the text or other questions to ask and things to consider as they uh, as they read the text this week. That sound good, Derek? Right. Yep, that sounds good. Excellent. Well, before we uh, go ahead and launch into things, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So like I said, we're going to be in Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and Moses chapters 4 and 5. And we are covering uh, the fall as well as uh, Cain killing Abel. And uh, these stories have, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in these stories, but there's also a lot of uh, cultural artifacts found in these stories regarding Mm -hmm. sin, uh, the origin of sin, what exactly happened in the Garden of Eden, what the transgression was, what the implications of the fall are, what the implications of the first murder are, and just all kinds of all kinds of conversations, all kinds of papers I have seen since getting into school about these two things alone. So uh, I'm anxious to see where you're going to be going with this today, Derek, what kind of questions you're going to be posing. Is there any other uh, background information you'd like to give before we uh, launch into the text? Nope, that's it. All right, sweet. Then, um, yeah, let's get right into it. Genesis uh, three and four. Is there any particular spot you wanna you wanna start? Because I kind of want to tread carefully with what I want to talk about today. Yeah. Well, let me just back up and say that there's many ways of reading scripture. Okay, you can read it as a historian trying to reconstruct what the original text meant to the original community that produced it. You can also do other readings where you liken the scriptures unto yourself, and that's a different goal. And I think historical critical readings of the text um, are a good starting place, but that's not the only conversation you need to have. And I think when we've got a text that comes from a different time and a different place, and uh, produced by a patriarchal community, as many communities are, we have to, we have some choices that, as to what we're going to do. Are we going to find a feminist uh, take on it? Are we going to find a pro-queer take on it? Are we going to find an anti-racist take on it in an act of likening the scriptures to un- ourselves in our own context? Or are we just going to say, you know what, there's problematic stuff in the text and we may not be able to salvage it in a way that is helpful? And I think both... I'm not saying one of these is right. There's going to be some people, especially queer people, some people, queer people are going to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, you know what? 
um, I can't find myself there. I'm I it, it is it's been used in a problematic ways or the problem it the text is problematic to begin with, and I don't think that we can redeem the text. There's other people like me that are going to say actually I hate to do the well actually thing, but if we say <laughs> well actually if you look at what it says I can find a queer a pro queer reading. And there's multiple pro-queer readings that are possible, but that's not to say someone else has to, to, it's like, well, Derek found a way to make it work, so you should do. So I think we'll get that with um, feminist readings and womanist readings of the text. There's some individuals who will be able to take the text in a way that's life-giving and liberatory towards women. And then there's other people who will say, you know what, the problems are so great that we don't want to, um, uh, you know, rush over the problems and just like like f- fix it and and ignore the, the the damage that's been done. So I'm I'm just saying there's so many I don't want to come out with one de- definitive interpretation of these chapters. I just want to leave a lot of questions for people. Like how does this text function? How did it function in the ancient world? How is it functioning in your life? How is it functioning uh when you hear it taught? Like what are the results of all that? I think those are good questions to ask. They're great questions to ask. And uh, I was thinking about a few of those as well uh, in the readings of Genesis 3 and 4 in particular, like just what you said. Uh, I had to read uh, these texts with, you know, a feminist lens, a womanist lens and an anti-racist lens because, you know, all of those all issues pertinent to all communities uh, directly affected by those uh, studies are present in uh, are present in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. Uh, for example, when we, like, honestly, a big part of chapter three actually starts in chapter two when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, when it comes mm-hmm. to woman, the creation of woman. Um, traditionally, readings have been used to answer one of your questions, Derek. Uh, readings of chapter two and three in particular have been used to interpret uh, woman as inferior from the outset because of, you know, how she was created from the rib or the side of a man and was made to be man's quote unquote helper. Um, people have interpreted the role that a woman plays at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where she's mm-hmm. often interpreted as some sort of, uh, like I've actually heard the word seductress used to describe the role of Eve mm-hmm. at this point with, you know, all these sexual undertones, even though the desire is for knowledge and perhaps godlike power, but not really sex. And, um, also this past, uh, six months, I think I finally been exposed and, you know, I think you may have actually quoted this Derek. But I was exposed to the Book of Sirach, which is, uh, I guess, part of the Orthodox and Catholic Bibles. I didn't find mm-hmm. it until um, I was reading this new translation of the Bible that also includes some apocryphal works. But, you know, mm-hmm. that part actually straight up blames women for the fall, like stating, uh, what's the verse? Hold up. Okay, this is the Book of Sirach twenty four twenty five. It says, from a woman, sin had its beginning, and because of her, we all die, close quote. So we got readings like that. Pretty much all of these things in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 have been used to depict women mm-hmm. as, um, you know, negative, as carnal, as inferior. Uh, you know, some kind of morally less than sit human in need of male guidance and disciplining as well as perpetual punishment through the God-willed pain of yeah. childbearing as a quote-unquote curse for her transgression in Eden. I think that's the, uh, where I think it's 316 where we see that word curse used. But that very mm-hmm. negative image has been internalized by many women and reinforced when ecclesiastical leaders started to juxtapose Eve and the Virgin Mary in Christian tradition and use all these other problematic readings and interpretations of Genesis uh, 2 and 3. And fortunately for us, uh, the Book of Moses actually does provide uh, some counter-reading to this, but I think it's very important that as we read these texts, we um, use our theology and also, you know, better readings to give, you know, or otherwise read dignity into the role of Eve because... Way too often that has been taken away from her and by extension has been taken right. away from women throughout our history. And that's a huge problem. I'm, I'm like wrestling with how much I want to talk about that, but I feel I at least got to name uh, the problem with traditional interpretations mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. fall story and of how we read into Mother Eve because, you know, it's a problem. And, um, you know, I want us to at least acknowledge that without uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, center myself in a conversation that perhaps I should not try to start, but I feel like I should at least name what's going on. Right. And I think it needs to be named that many women will um, uh, will find Eve to be a, a strong hero character. Others mm-hmm. will not resonate with Eve. And that is OK, because you're supposed to liken the scriptures unto yourself. And I think people will be di- situated differently. And I don't want to dictate one correct way of taking this text because it's going to get back to that question about how the text functions, right? So if I have this particular interpretation, it may have a function or a result or an implication that's not going to be helpful for someone. And Mm. so that's not what I want to do. All right. Yeah, but I think there are possibilities. Um, There are seeds of liberation that we can find. Um, We notice that Eve takes initiative. Eve can be seen as having wisdom. Um, there's a sense in which the narrator of Genesis looks like Eve is trying to characterize Eve as messing everything up. But I think that you don't have to read it that way. And um, a lot of times we talk about this as the fall, but um, Jewish sources don't really talk about this as a fall. That is really a a kind of a Christian thing that's going to that's been read into the text. Um, There's a lot of Christian stuff that's read into the text that's not there. You've got this serpent, which is in actually a neutral character. The serpent isn't called evil. Uh, The serpent is one of God's creations, and God created everything, and it was good. Um, The serpent is clever, not evil, um, and this serpent can talk. Um, And it's more like a sort of a a um, trickster or a wild card thing than someone who's out to to ruin everything. And I think uh, Satan gets anachronistically read into this text. Um, and of course, we've got um, our Latter-day Saint reception history of this text, which includes Moses and Abraham and the temple narrative, which that, in the 19th century, interprets this in terms of of Satan, but right. that's not what we have to do. I mean, this is the 21st century, and we now have a new uh, forum for the reception history of the text. I'm basically just random rambling. I'm not even looking at notes right now. I kind of <laughs> have some. I might, I might, might pull that out at some point. But those are some. Like I said, I want to ask a lot of questions of the text. I think asking good questions of the text is one of the most important things for being a theologian because the questions you ask can really funnel you into um, something that's either liberating or problematic, Mm. right? Like if we look at the text and ask, well, what does this text teach us about gender roles? You're already coming to the the text with that question, and it's going to shape everything you do with it, right? Yeah, but if job. you look at the text saying, hey, what, how do I notice myself in the text and would I make the same choices they do? That's a different question, a completely different approach to reading. And I think these reading strategies are quite important. Um, if you look at these texts for explanatory value of like this is where women came from or this is where uh, black people came from, right? If you look for this as a um, – the etiology of of things like why do we have pain in childbirth why do we wear clothing why do we all this other stuff that ends up uh being a genre mistake i think because you're looking this at this like it's a historical record or a newspaper account of why this happened why does no it's not it's not a record of what actually happened and i think um that needs to be named as well Yes. Uh, if I can just uh, go back for a moment to what you said about asking the right questions. Truly, one of my favorite lessons of being in school, both taught by my uh, my instructors and my classmates, is that theology, and I would say our faith generally, is less about answering questions and more about asking the right ones. In this particular case, I appreciate you naming what aren't the most important questions, and perhaps we can direct mm-hmm. people to more relevant questions whose answers can inform how we uh, how we talk about Mother Eve, how we talk about women and their roles in both societal and ecclesiastical leadership, 
the right, kind right. of implications that has for how we raise our children, how we talk about sin and transgression, how Eve holds up a mirror to the queer community and the church, especially yeah. the queer saints who can't abide the Garden of Eden that is the church if they are to grow and flourish. Mm-hmm. There are just so many questions we could ask and conversations we could have, but you know, would again end up doing what we did last week and spending the majority of our time attempting to answer just one question. Right. So let me pivot from these for now and ask uh, if you got any questions yeah. you, w- you would like to start out with, if this is a good time yeah, for I that. Think, I think one of the most important questions we can ask, uh, well, let me tell you what, what's a question I don't want us to ask is to like go to this question, go to this text and look for evidence whether or not evolution happened, right? Okay. That's not the purpose of the text. I don't think that's the right question because you're, you're, you're asking something that this text was not designed to address in its historical context. Like the creators of this text did not mean to address the the scientific questions of the 19th century. That's mm-hmm. not what they were addressing. That's not what they were speaking to. It is a category error to, uh, and it's actually devaluing the text to turn the text into something that it isn't, a, a recipe for science or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, asking, well, did evolution happen is not the question you should ask of this text. I think we should ask questions like, how am I going to treat my neighbor better after encountering this text? I think that is a very fruitful conversation that all of us can look and say, is it I, in different ways, on our different axes of privilege and marginalization, and find ways that, oh no, am I acting like Cain? Am I acting like Eve? Am I acting like the serpent? Am I acting like Adam? There's just ways that we can ask ourselves, um, uh, encounter through the text some of the same things that we all have. We all have temptations. Mm-hmm. And I think the question is, well, what am I going to do having learned, does this text make me a better person and how? That is a question that I think is very, very productive. Definitely, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about creation again. Okay. Because um, is this stuff? Is this the stuff we didn't get to last week? It's well, it's connected it's because connected. we're okay. we're getting into um, something that's sort of set up. Is uh, the opportunity is ripe for? drama for rising action in the plot Uh, because if everything stayed peaceful in the garden you wouldn't have a plot you would not have mortality so we've got this rising action here which is set up by creation in a very particular way and so we've got uh, this concept called chaos monsters which you don't really see explicitly in Genesis 1 and 2 but I think they end up behind the scenes you can see this more in psalm 74 and more in job 3 and for those of us who listened last week uh we've actually got traditions in the israelite world similar to marduk slaying tiamat where you have a god the creator slaying the chaos monsters such as leviathan or rahab uh not not the woman's name rahab it's just a coincidence And then this is part of uh, creation language, and it's also part of Exodus language, and you get this celebrated later. And for some reason, you don't have these texts as creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2, but you have echoes of them elsewhere in these scriptures. And here's what um, Greg Mobley, a professor of Hebrew Bible, has said. Quote, the backstory of the creation stories is the return of the chaos monsters, humanity's all-time favorite B-movie. The chaos monsters are personifications of the disorderly, random, and untamed features of reality. The backstory explains that God has defeated but not obliterated the monsters and that they invariably return to wreak havoc when humans inadvertently open the door to their cages through ethical lapses. Close quote. Um, And this is uh, from his book on um, the return of the chaos monsters. Very interesting. And the interesting thing is we've got some hints of this with um, in both Genesis 3 
and four, where you've got this opening for disobedience. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will in both three and four. There's an opening here. You've got sin crouching at the door with Abel, uh, Cain, and you've got this opening with the serpent kind of causing some little trickstery things, which reminds me a lot of, of the Gilgamesh narrative. So Gilgamesh, I don't have time to summarize all of Gilgamesh, but... Towards the end of the Gilgamesh narrative, Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk in Mesopotamia, and he wants to search for immortality. He goes and finds the the uh, the plant that will give him e- eternal life, but then he um, sets it aside for just a moment, and then this serpent comes and snatches and, and eats it up, and oh no, he has no more eternal life. And so the serpent isn't wicked in the Gilgamesh narrative, but it is very parallel to... What we've got going on here in Genesis 3, where you've got a plant that can give eternal life, and the serpent does something that sets in motion a chain of events, which then deprives them of access to the plant that can help them live forever. And this explains mythologically like why death exists, why mortality exists, why um, we have to farm the world instead of just plucking the fruit off of the tree whenever we're hungry. And so um so yeah, that's kind of kind of where I want to go with that. What are your thoughts or 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 thing anything you wanted to say about um what gets called the fall narrative? Not really. I mean, I wanted to say something different about the fall narrative than something related to its necessity or the wisdom of Eve. And those are conversations I'm quite certain most congregations will have. And I believe them to be important. Um, what I want to briefly address, however, is the the duality of what we call the fall. I've heard, for example, the fall referred to as both a tragedy and a triumph, a setback for Adam and Eve, and also a sort of matriculation into adulthood for Adam and Eve. And with that, all the freedoms and powers of adulthood, but also the trials and pains of it too. The fall is both a step forward and a step back somehow, depending on how you look at it, or perhaps both at the same time. Adam and Eve, they were successful in their power grab, as we see in the Lord's words in uh, Genesis 3.22, he said, or uh, sorry, they say, uh, man has become one of us. But the relationship between uh, Adam and Adama, humankind and earth, that is damaged, according to Genesis 3.17 through 19. Thorns and thistles the earth will bring. Uh, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. A very interesting choice of words that merits a conversation on its own that I'm afraid we won't have time to get to today. And the situation of woman is going to dramatically change uh, painful and dangerous childbirths, plus patriarchy. This is Genesis 3.16 now. Uh, What does it say? Multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Sorrow shalt in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. You know, problematic is all get out. And I don't got to say again exactly how verses, how passages like this have shown up in not just our ecclesiology, but also in our society in general, and how, you know, these words have been used to justify the oppression of women. But to move on from that, uh, paradise is lost for Adam and Eve now, but also a portion of Godhood is gained. The future history, or rather, sorry, the uh, successful gain uh, and and desire for power that has entered the story is going to mark and mar the ongoings of humankind from this point on. That becomes obvious already in the next story with uh, Cain and Abel, which we're going to get to in a bit. But with this duality I was talking about, I think a good question is, what made this event a win? What made it an L? Is what they did wrong or right? Is it somehow both? And uh, why? And what kind of implications does that have for us, especially uh, those of us on the margins who potentially have to find ourselves in no-win situations and situations that are simultaneously step back for the institution? 
in terms of our relationship with the institution or perhaps a step forward in terms of our relationship with God and ourselves. Um, yeah, and it's tough because um, the question of is what they did wrong is a central question. Like maybe yeah. it was a sin, maybe it wasn't a sin. I think different people will, um, it, it is definitely, um, they transgressed a an explicit commandment given by God, but here's the question, is that, was that designed? Were they supposed to do that? Was mm-hmm. it um, a necessary transgression, right? Is it, um, and I like the framing of Eve being the first person to enumerate the commandments, and she uh, enumerated, at least in the Latter-day Saint world, mm-hmm. the commandments of uh, being fruitful and multiply, which last week I said wasn't a commandment. Um, and I still think in the Genesis narrative, it's, it's not a commandment. Mm-hmm. Um uh in part because not all people are willing or able to to uh to 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 reproduce like your right. your eight your seven year old child who dies at age seven is not required to be baptized certainly they're not required to reproduce i mean to take it as a universal blanket commandment makes no sense whatsoever mm-hmm. right um the gospel it, it's not requisite that anyone should run faster than they have strength according to um i think it's mosiah 4:27 and i think the same thing is true here even if you've got this in uh, uh endowing humanity with with the capacity to re- reproduce it's not an individual commandment that's bearing on every person anyway my point is at least in certain LDS narratives eve gets um tasked with enumerating the commandments, the commandment to uh, stay together and reproduce, and the commandment not to eat the, um, the, the, the fruit. And, and then um, she enumerated those and picked which one was more important, which one was necessary for the progression. So she has wisdom, insight. She acts as a theologian. Um, she prophesies. Right. And so there's ways that... Um, it appears that this step was a necessary step. And we've got non-Latter-day Saint like Augustine um, who say, well, this was a fortunate fall or a blessed fall. A fall forward. Um, and uh, and that's, that's something to name. And I think wrestling with the text is important. And I think that's one thing we can learn from our, our Jewish siblings is wrestling with the text. You don't have to take it at face value. You don't have to take it as the final word. But you can say, look, you, you can push back on the text. You can push back on God and say, hey, wait a minute. And I think that's exactly what Eve uh, Eve does here. And um, and another question is, I think, why was the pushback there? And what exactly was she seeking uh, when she interrogated, I guess, the commandment? Right. And when she eventually, quote unquote, broke it, like what was she, what was mm-hmm. she after is a mm-hmm. good question. And what you were saying reminds me of something that Michael Carden wrote in the Queer Bible Commentary on Genesis about this fall narrative being like puberty, like becoming an adult. Mm -hmm. And you've got this sense of innocence here, but the adult world is where you want to be. That's where um, you can flourish. That is where you can do things. That is where you can encounter things and grow and develop. And yes, there's death in the adult world. There's rent in the adult world there's bills in the adult you know i was waiting for that there's rent there's bills why you want to be an adult (laughs) right but apparently it's worth it Mm -hmm. right um because you're able to do more things i mean yeah being a kid is fun but being an adult it's you've got more weight on you you've got all this stuff this but you're is able where to do progress more. towards godhood happens. And I think this is where we as Latter-day Saints can look at the fall differently. Like um we don't have to see the fall as um oh Eve did something bad, we're all bad and now Jesus has to come fix it and and take away the sin. I think if you see it as a necessary step of development, then um we're actually as part we're, we're developing and um and then this gets back into all sorts of stuff with gender like you're talking about like did eve mess everything up or mm-hmm. did she uh save adam from himself because he didn't do what he needed to do right mm-hmm. 
And there's there's a narrative like this. I think it's in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses didn't know what he was doing in terms of circumcising his son. And Zipporah, his wife, says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do it for you because you don't know what you're doing and God's going to kill you unless I step in and do the right thing. And so sometimes we've got women who know what's going on uh, more than the priesthood holding men. And I think that is some a lesson that we should all learn. Oh, um, and then what does this say about God? Because we should never forget that we're all created in God's image. Mm-hmm. And um, there's two way, There's two directions you can take that. You can say, oh, I know what God's image is, and then I can impose that on humans in a wooden way. Or you can say, you know what? I can look around at the diversity and splendor of all humans— in terms of race and ethnicity and in gender and um, gender identity and seeing intersex folks and seeing non-binary folks and say, you know what? If it is true that we're all created in the image of God, that tells us something about God. Mm-hmm. And so um, we can use the diversity of humanity to expand our concept of God or we can use a pre-existing concept of God to artificially limit humanity. And I think that's what a lot of people want to do in the church is they say, well, God equals heavenly father plus heavenly mother, no more, no less, um, unless you've got uh, polygamy involved. But traditionally, uh, in light of the proclamation, a lot of people want to say, we know what God is, and then we're going to squeeze and like Procrustes bed, we're going to squeeze and stretch and chop people until they fit this. I'm like, mm-hmm. where did you get thing. that image of God? Mm-hmm. Did you not get that image of God by looking around at people created in the image of God to tell you what God is like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of um, something I want to say. And it reminds me a lot of what um, uh, uh, Mary Daly said, that if God is male, then male, male is, is God. God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's a tough. Um, now I'm not going to agree with everything she said, and she probably wouldn't like some of what I said. Hmm. Um, she wasn't. Uh, well, I'm not going to talk about her too much. But my point is that we need to really think about how these views function, because if I start believing that God is male, that is going to change how I treat people, mm-hmm. and that's where mm-hmm. the rubber hits the road. Is I want to say, do I read this text in a way that? expands my view of other people and helps me treat people more justly and more inclusively? Or does it give me a pretext to do the thing I was going to do anyway and give a diminished place for women or a diminished place for queer people or a diminished place for uh, people of color? Um, Which uh, Adam and Eve weren't weren't white, by the way. I don't know why we want to make them white. (laughs) There's nothing in the text that makes them white. The only thing we know about them is that they were made out of the soil, Adama, mm-hmm. um, the fertile soil. And I don't know anywhere where there's fertile soil that's white. <laughs> right? I, I mean, the ancient Near Eastern continent, they were not, these were Mesopotamian origin stories. They were not Northern Europeans. Adam and Eve did not look like me. Um, anyway, I've been talking a lot. What do you think? Well, you already said the part. I was waiting for you to get to, which is naming that our views of God, namely what they look like, what their character is, what they want for us, how we how we answer those questions affects how we treat other people. Um, not too long ago, I don't know if you remember this, but we were discussing with a missionary their frustration of not being able to get an image of a black Jesus approved on a social media page. Of course, The people in charge were white, and they made a big deal out of it, which opens the door for another very important uh, theological question. That question being, why are you so pressed, bro? Like, what do you have to gain from keeping a black Jesus from appearing on your social media page? A question that I believe has an obvious answer, but an important one to work through and, you know, work through with other people, perhaps, and to speak aloud. It's just one piece of the puzzle, but it's not a coincidence that in 2022, 13 of the 15 
of the Quorum of the Fifteen are white. Fourteen, if you include uh, the white passing one. It's not a coincidence that in 2022, we've yet to put our name on a non-white representation of Jesus in church media. Not a coincidence that it took the church seven years to say Black Lives Matter, or took them a whole week to say anything about George Floyd's murder, and then until Elder Oaks' talk in October to name police brutality. Why? While our commitment to a white God or Jesus may not be the source of all this, it is yet another demonstration of our commitment to whiteness as a church and our lack of commitment to and understanding of how we recognize the image of God in everyone. In other words, as a, as a ah, sick Mormon Jewish author, I think I got all those titles in there, as a James Goldberg says, White Jesus has consequences, and it's difficult to look at incidents like those with our missionary friend, as well as how we generally interact with non-white populations, and see and not see a connection between those and, depiction, and depictions of white God and Jesus. Overall, refusing to uh, see the the disabled, those without addresses, the feminine and other marginalized groups and deity, that prevents us from fully honoring the image of God in those same people, thereby compromising our ability to assist in the work that Moses 139 outlines, bringing to pass mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. immortality and eternal life of man. Right, and I that's why I like Will Gaffney's lectionary, which I'm reading through. Um, it's a women's lectionary for the whole church. Uh, and just seeing some of the stories of women. And she's not out to, like, sanitize the Bible and fix it. And, like, you know, some of these stories with women are tragic and raw, and um, and that needs to be named, right? There's, yeah. there's, there's room to wrestle with the text here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think also we are impoverished if we— we are impoverished if we don't have dialogue with other groups, especially Muslims and Jews and other Christians, because we're sharing some of these same narratives. And I'm wondering like how some of these things play out. Like I remember some of the first times I've, uh, I had gone to a mosque and typically in mosques, every mosque I've been, I've been into to, uh, you know, uh, at least over a dozen different mosques. And, uh, none of the ones I've been in have any type of imagery of of God or of humans or of animals. Um, the most art that I've seen is either geometric designs, like little triangles and, and squares and little things like that, just sort of filigree type thing. Or I've seen calligraphy where they have written out verses from the Quran in Arabic on the wall. There's no... Nothing that you can, uh, and this gets back to the very strong prohibition against idolatry. You don't want to make any graven image. You don't want to have anything that you would worship. There's no pictures of Muhammad. There's absolutely no pictures of God. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, and there's certain Christian traditions that do that too, where they take it very seriously of no graven images. Now, we in our church, we've got white Jesus, and I think that's idolatry. Um, I'm not against completely the depiction of God artistically, but I am against depicting God as a Northern European male, um, and then thinking that that's what God is. And then I mean, like, having that's just such gross. a strong enforcement of that particular image, like we've seen right. in our experiences and in our communications with other members of the church, that people just tend to pitch a fit when you know, Jesus is anything other Mm -hmm. than, you know, a white European male. Right, because that's the choice, is that if you're going to have a graven image of God, if you're going to have a a painting or a statue, you're going to have to choose the color of that skin, right? Mm -hmm. At least in Islam, you never have to choose. Right. Um, And in um, Islam, God is uh, uh, ethnically neutral. There's no... God has no no body, no ethnicity, no any of that, right? Um, but you're going to have to choose the color of God's skin. Like these cutesy little pictures of the, the first vision, you've got Heavenly Father there, and you have to choose how, what facial features you're going to give, what ethnicity you're going to give mm-hmm. God. That's why I love the best um, uh, ones— the best art of God are the ones where it's like a silhouette or a or a or a something that you can't actually see, 
the the details of God. Mm-hmm. It's it's just so obscured by um, uh, something that that you don't have to make those choices. And I like mm. that there's no no images in a mosque, and in in many synagogues as well. You also have no images. And this gets back to a question that Will Gaffney asks in the Hebrew Bible: Does God have a penis? And I think that's important because it goes back to this to the Mary Daly thing. Like, if God has a penis, well, what does that say? Um, and according to Will Gaffney, the God of the Hebrew Bible does not anywhere um, have a penis, as as far as is recorded. Um, God does have a womb in the Hebrew Bible, but God is not said to have a penis anywhere. And, well, what do we do with that? And I think a lot of men listening to this are all going to get, they're going to get all stressed or whatever. I'm like, fine, deal with it, right? Um, And here's one of the, now I should say there's scholars on the other side, um, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. I haven't looked at her writing yet on this, but I do know that she argues that the God of the Hebrew Bible is embodied and does have a penis, but I don't. I have not looked at her evidence on this yet, and I don't know what it is. But here's what I would say: is if you think that God has a penis in the Hebrew Bible, then show me the penis. It's kind of like that Jerry Maguire movie, "Show Me the Money." Yeah. Show me the penis. Show me, like, if you think this is so important, like, why are you putting so much importance on this? And um. As far as I know, we've got uh, we don't have God fitting our categories, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, many gods in the ancient world, well, people might say, well, well, God has a penis, is just not mentioned. But let me tell you something about the ancient world. Any god that has a penis, that penis gets mentioned. We know about Zeus's penis. We know about Osiris's penis because he lost it. We know about uh, Hermes. We know about Priapus, of course. We know about Odin's penis. We know about we. You know, Zeus's penis is the cause of half the wars in Greek mythology, based on who he's trying to sleep with. True story. Um, I mean, not really a true story, but you are right, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but my point is that if God's penis were so important. Or existed, we would have narratives of it in in the scriptures, and we don't have that. And I think fixating on that um, is is a problem. And mm-hmm. I would love to just problematize and challenge people's assumptions about God. Now, I'm not gonna uh, give a final uh, thing because I haven't looked at Stavrakopoulou's. Um, she wrote a book, God Anatomy, is uh, an anatomy is what it's what's what it's called. But anyway, it gets back to the image of God. Like, if I image God as having a penis, well, what about people who don't have a penis? Mm-hmm. Are they less in the image of God? That's a question that Satan's going to want to tempt you to ask. And I think this gets back to, well, Satan can really tempt us by putting putting some, uh, some verbal frames on something and making something accessible when maybe that's not what we should be doing. And speaking of the image of God, Imago Dei, there... Um, some some Protestants, I'm thinking of Matthias Flacius, uh, uh, an early Lutheran, who actually said, yes, we were created in the image of God, um, Imago Dei, but that got replaced in the fall with the Imago Satanai, the image of Satan. Hmm. I'm like, ooh, that's really interesting. Now, of course, I don't think that's true. But um, anyway, I've been rambling on a lot. Uh, but let me just say about um, one last thing is about whether the image of God is non-binary or androgynous and whether the original Adam was non-binary or Perhaps androgynous. Intersex. Yes. And this gets back to sort of the, well, different people are going to find it life-giving in different ways. Right. And I think there are, are many Jewish traditions where the um, original Adam is gender neutral or somehow composed of both, androgynous, mm-hmm. and then that get, gets differentiated later. Origin, the Christian said that. There are some Gnostic sects that also uh, said that, that the original creation was not male, but uh, male and female, and then that, and then that got divided. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's very interesting. However, I do know one of my non-binary Christian friends, they have reported to me 
their discomfort with this uh, because they're like, well, under this reading, Adam was originally whole and complete and beautiful and complex and, and had, you know, this non-binary beautifulness. And then that got torn in half and you got this rigidity of gender. And now you've you had to tear apart the non-binary individual in order to get male and female, which I don't identify with those anyway. So my point is um, some of these readings are going to be life giving for some people and some of them are not. And I think that's where we have uh, the ability to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. All right. Well, speaking of uh, likening scriptures to ourselves, um, I have a little bit to say uh, with regard to what the introduction of sin via Cain and Abel means and mm -hmm. uh, how we might interpret the curse of Cain. Is it a, is it a good time to uh, move to that? Yeah, or? let's go ahead and do that. Okay. So I, I kind of did a bad thing, Derek. Um, Oops. I um, was planning on spending the majority of time on, uh, you know, what's written in Genesis four, uh, regarding, you know, Cain and Abel, the, uh, the, especially the dialogue that God has mm -hmm. with uh, Cain in mm -hmm. particular. And then I made the mistake of going to uh, Moses chapter five to read what that says as well. And, uh, I found a lot of things, Derek, a lot of things that I don't think I had. Well, I definitely don't fully have them fleshed out. But I do want to read them anyway mm -hmm. and ask uh, some further questions about what they might mean. Because I didn't just uh -huh. find a uh, reading that can be more affirmative of black life, but I found what I believe could be a stunning indictment of white supremacy once fleshed out. Oh, wow. I think Oh, this good. I'm be... so excited to hear about this. Now, yeah. I have to say, in preparing for today, I didn't even read Mo Mo the Moses text. I'm Dude. just in Genesis because I'm... That's where I am. I totally get that. That was my plan for today as well, my guy. I wanted to stay in Genesis because I was like, I, I think I would wanted to pull from Moses 4 and 5 for the more redemptive readings of Eve. Um, and I didn't think I was going to find much when I got to Moses 5. It, it had been a long time since I have read Moses 5. And I figured it was, I mean, I knew there was more to the story here, but I was like, I wonder what uh, Latter-day Saint scripture has added to this story and what it has added mm -hmm. to our theological inquiry. And when I found something that could potentially like really seriously disrupt white supremacy, I was like, crap, I am not prepared for today's discussion because there's a Ooh, lot here. Okay. And um, again, I think there's more here than I realize. But, you know, let me just start with, uh, you know, the original story or the original dialogue between Cain and Abel. Mm. Wait, so we're in Moses or we're in Genesis? We're going to start in Genesis. Okay. Yes, that is where we are going to start. So, first of all, in the Genesis text, and, and we get this in the Moses text too, we see a continuation of this quest for power that was introduced with the fall. Mm -hmm. the, the conflict we see is initiated by one of the earliest subversions of Babylonian creation story ethos, namely the value placed on the firstborn child, which which is Cain in this case. Uh, Cain doesn't get a lot of shine. He Well, he doesn't get that kind mm -hmm. of shine, though. In fact, the way Genesis 4 opens up, the uh, chiastic order of the events in verses 1 through 5 suggests primarily that they're rivals and even equals. Like, like, read read this. Mm -hmm. Eve bore Cain, next she bore Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a tiller of ground. Cain brought an offering, Abel brought an offering. The Lord liked Abel's offering, Lord didn't like Cain's offering. Like, the, like, the, the, the author's likely doing that on purpose to both foreshadow what comes later in this story and also buck any assumptions that Cain is entitled to everything. But anyway, back to the story. I mean, you, you saw that, right? Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain, Cain, Abel, Abel, Cain. Just that that constant back and forth indicates some kind of equality or rivalry. But anyway, back to the story. Even though Abel isn't the firstborn and has uh, the less prestigious occupation of shepherd, he is the one that is favored, presumably because the quality of his uh, sacrifice 
having having offered the firstlings of his flock held in held in contrast to Cain's fruits rather than the first fruits of the ground. This is yet another and a more direct subversion of the firstborn narrative that Babylonians are accustomed to and which we'll see throughout the Hebrew Bible. We're, we're going to see this with uh, with Isaac, with Jacob, Judah, Joseph, Ephraim, David, and, and more stories of entire nations that, and other significant events centering mm-hmm. the, uh, the not firstborn and their, and their offspring. Jesus himself will come through the line of David in addition to a lot of uh, complicated genealogy, not just secondborns, but also barren mothers and uh, women of you know, ill repute, at least according to uh, the text. Just saying, all of this is a reminder to mind mm-hmm. the ways in which oppressive orders and preference for the first or the most prestigious or the most virile are subverted all throughout the text. But here's another one that is uh, more specific to uh, in terms of subverting the text that I picked up from uh, Black Liberation theologian James Cone. He uh, likens white Americans to Cain and black Americans to Abel to make sense of a curse that for too long has been ascribed yeah. to us as a punishment for Cain's fratricide. I'm going to recount this story and ask if you can hear why Cone ascribes this curse to whiteness. Cain lured Abel into a field. He lured Abel away from human habitation, a thing that's emphasized later in the text as a place where people are most vulnerable to violence. And then he killed Abel, presumably out of jealousy. Uh, But Moses 5.33 adds the dimension of Cain going after Abel's resources. And when God confronts Cain about his brother's whereabouts, Cain denies responsibility for knowing, asking... Am I my mm-hmm. brother's keeper? However, Cain's plan to uh, to cover his tracks is foiled by Abel's blood mm-hmm. crying out from the ground, at which point God asks, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Cain is then cursed for his actions from this point onward. Now I'm going to do a Cone's reading um, and how it, by, by directly mm-hmm. substituting Cain and Abel, for white and black folks. The Lord asks white folks in this country, where are your black siblings? And too many whites respond with, am I my brother's keeper, my black brother's keeper? To which the Lord might respond with, what hast thou done for the last 400 years with my children? The voice of their blood crieth unto me and to you from the ground. And what immediately follows this verse is quite chilling. It, it's, it's regarding the curse. And it says, quote, And now thou shalt be cursed from the earth, which, that, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. So Cone, of course, was uh, directly saying that because of white people's treatment of black folks, that they are under a curse, so long as black blood cries from the ground, to both them and to our maker. So if anyone is under a curse, it's probably going to be racist white folks who respond with apathy, ignorance, or hostility to the cries of our black siblings as they mourn or as they die. For too long, racist whites have uh, polluted the ground with our blood and with our tears and with our sweat. And their curse could be interpreted a variety of ways. Uh, For example, in seeking the flocks of Abel by killing him, Cain lost his ability to, to till the ground. So, so then, in seeking superiority or an abundant life at the expense of black folks, what did white people lose? And what effect is that having on the ability to reconcile the races today? I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, at the clock now, and I just realized I can't go too much over the additional knowledge that Moses 5 gives us or try to even begin to answer this terrifying theological question but uh, I will say that Cain's motivations and his temptation, the transference of Cain's oaths and his curse through his posterity, the strong response of Lamech to any kind of challenge or perceived slight to himself or his power, the blatant refusal of his descendants to hearken to explicit direction from God and engage in secret con- combinations to preserve to preserve their superiority and their position— 
I believe there's something big there that gives us further tools to talk about the effects of white supremacy and bigotry on us as a, as a people and also as a church. At, at some point, I'm going to flesh it all out and present it in something, but I, I, I ain't got it today because I was so focused on Genesis that I, that I missed these gems in uh, Moses 5. Hopefully, I'll get, to, I'll, I'll get to talk about this at a later date or you know, treat it somewhere else, maybe an essay or something. That is interesting. Um, like based on the way you're reading it, it really does look like that white solidarity is a secret combination. Yes. Uh, it's a conspiracy to keep white people um, in power. And uh, I mean, parts of it are not so secret, but it is this idea that um, the whole point is to organize with others to exploit some other people. And that's exactly what uh, we've got going on here. And that's exactly what Cain was doing, was trying to exploit, um, was jealous of what, what Abel had. Abel had favor with God, and Cain was like, yeah, I, um, I, want, uh, I want that. And I think this gets back into like the way white folks have been socialized to read scripture of seeing ourselves as centered, seeing ourselves as the hero. normative or default. And I think that is what that that's I probably why this whole marking of Cain. Um, now, the mark of Cain and the curse of Cain are different. The curse is, is given as, uh, you know, the, the ground won't won't be as fertile for you and you'll have to work harder. That's the curse. The mark was actually given to protect Cain, if you actually look at the text. And so it's a mm-hmm. good thing. Um, this, this word in Hebrew is ot uh, for the mark that is uh, given to um, Cain, and it's given to protect Cain. So Cain says, "Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get killed uh, if you make me go out into where everyone else is, and uh, because of this." And then that's where it says, "Okay, God is going to protect him with this, um, uh, get, uh, um, this mark, um, which God loves to give chances." And you know, white people are people that always get second chances. So of course, Cain was white, and um, <laughs> that makes sense. Cain <laughs> got a second chance. He got protected. Yes, he got protected. Um, um, now the real just thing to do would be to raise Abel from the dead, I think. But mm-hmm. but that's not what happens. So um, so this oat, this sign is used. I just looked a few places where this Hebrew word is used in Genesis, and the ones that I saw were all positive in nature. So the uh, great lights were in Genesis one were given as signs um, for for the years and, and seasons and stuff, and then um, uh, circumcision is a sign of of the covenant in in Genesis seventeen. Um, the rainbow in Genesis nine is a sign of of the covenant there as well. Um, in Exodus, the Sabbath is given as a sign, um, and I'm translating this as the same thing as gets translated as the mark. So there's this this sort of symbolic sign that's given to um, uh, Cain. That's a good thing. Um, not, but I think my, I think what happened is somehow white people center themselves in the text and realize that, oh, if, if Cain is given a visible mark in some way, that means he must now be a person of color, which that's not at all the implication. Um, but I think it comes out of centering white people and saying, well, if there's some visible sign, well, that's must be the origin of, of, um, black people but that's not what it says Mm -hmm. and so we need to uh, be be very clear as to what the text says i just want to talk about how uh, not only you but even jesus looked at the death of abel and broadened it to marginalized and persecuted people innocent i should say uh emphasizing that um, throughout time, you see this in Matthew 23, verse 35, and Luke 11, verse 51. And Jesus is condemning um, leaders of his own people in his generation, saying that all of the guilt of all of the righteous blood from that of Abel to uh, Zechariah, whom you slew, 
Hmm. Um, which of course happened way earlier, but he's saying mm-hmm. whom you slew, that blood is falling upon you. And then we have this in Hebrews, uh, that in Hebrews eleven four, part of the faith of Abel is that he brought a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And then we get something interesting in the next chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, that um, the blood of Jesus is superior to that of Abel. And um, and this gets back to uh, how, it, people reading the, the Bible with the wrong questions. Because if you try to go to the Bible and ask, well, where did black people come from? You're going to get the wrong answer somewhere, right? Because you're going to try to find some origin of black people. That's not what it does. I think you need to go to science and realize that, A, all of humanity originally comes from Africa. That's where our species evolved. Um, We're all originally indigenous to Africa and then only later spread to other continents, um, and there's a biological uh, basis for, for for a variety in skin color as well, right? And I think that depending on uh, how much sunlight you get and how much vitamin D you make and how there's just a lot of reasons why um, skin color evolved, right? And so we should not try to use the Bible to answer questions that... Uh, that actually we, we can give, give better answers to. Did I say that wrong? Is there something problematic about that? I don't think so, my guy. Okay. I just want to double check because I don't, it's just not, I, sh- I should probably not be talking too much about uh, these things, but that's kind of where, but I, it goes back to like, am I my brother's keeper, right? And yes, I sir. think trying to get out of responsibility for your fellow human is what white people do, and it's what Cain did from mm-hmm. the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a great, I mean, I hate to be that guy. This is a great general lesson for humanity in the first place, but I think we lose a lot of the lesson in refusing to be specific and in refusing mm-hmm. to name uh, the problems that we got. I mean, this is why Jesus was so specific in the Beatitudes. Um, you know, why he didn't say blessed are all lives or while, or why, um, you know, we need to be specific about this particular issue because saying love one another isn't specific enough. Saying blessed are all lives is not specific enough. Like naming these, you know, populations that we regularly fail or that we regularly ignore, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's black folk. And I chose to make that analogy for, you know, Cain and Abel. Uh, but, you know, this is also people without addresses. This is people who are disabled. This is, uh, you know, people who, espo- who have any other marginalized identity. We have this nasty habit as humans to not want to take responsibility for the well-being of our fellow man. And um, right. that, that's just something that we got to address. One, one reason why yeah. I personally, I mean, I obviously chose the racial route because I'm directly affected by it. But... Um, Mm-hmm. You know, this is a good general principle to apply uh, for for anyone to any kind of situation, but especially where it concerns our marginalized siblings, because denying that there's a problem uh, that, you know, our marginalized identities inform is, um, you know, that is that is a big sin. And I think yeah. that is one reason why God was so angry with Cain was because he acted like something that he had a direct hand in or something that he otherwise could have prevented or something that he did have something to do with was not his problem. And, you know, this shirking of accountability, this shirking of responsibility, this, this is something that does not please the Lord. And, uh, we as a church, we as a people, generally speaking, and, uh, we who have any kind of privileged identity, we have to Mm -hmm. regularly repent of that sin. Right. And that goes back to like which questions you ask, because you could go and ask, like, how am I like Abel? Or you could go and ask, how am I like Cain? Yes, sir. And there's a time and a place for both questions. Absolutely. And I think so many of us are socialized not to even ask how we're like Cain, right? Oh, yeah. No one wants to do that. (laughs) We're missing we're missing something if we don't ask, how am I my fellow humans uh, keeper? Um uh, and how is my fellow human's blood crying from the ground? And how that that reaches God, by the way. That is so powerful that um, the blood of this fallen, unjustly killed 
individual reaches God, and then God has something to do with that. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting tired. I probably should stop talking because we're probably way over time now. Oops. Yeah, yeah, that's that's on me. I could have stopped talking about 10 minutes ago, so that is my bad. Um, but yeah, I can make whatever edits are necessary. But before we go ahead and wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. Uh, the first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblock.com. Also on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS, and then also on Facebook. That is correct. And also wanted to give a, give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, uh, as well as Stephanie March and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media stuff. And of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, these outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me from the Margin Study Helps. I'm personally looking forward to hearing what uh, Faithful Feminists are going to have for us this week regarding Genesis 3 and 4, as mm -hmm. well as Moses 4 and 5. Um, the link to these outlines will be in the show notes, as well as the, uh, the drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for uh, the transcripts. Um, I feel like I might be forgetting something. Is there anything else I got to put the people on to, Derek? No, I don't think so. All right. If we do, I can always make a post about it. But anyway, thank you for tuning in till we meet again next week. Till we meet again next week. Bye-bye. Oh, <laughs> that may be true.